0: All right. Hey, everybody. Good morning. Let me get situated here. My name is Adam. I serve on staff as the pastor of student ministries uh, here at Mission View. And uh, you're watching Church Online. So if you're looking for Netflix, you missed it. Hey, we are uh, in the book of Malachi. So if you want to go ahead and turn there. A couple housekeeping things, though, first. Hey, I just want to let you know uh, that we love you and care about you. Uh, I know that we've said it time and time again. We might be sick of hearing it. I'm sure you've got plenty of emails. I've been getting emails from CEOs of office supply stores, uh, which really doesn't mean all that much to me. Uh, So I hope it hasn't become so repetitive that it just kind of bounces off us. I, I hope that Uh, For the length of Mission View's life, for how long Mission View has existed in North Canton, we have faithfully served uh, our body, that we have faithfully served our our community, um, that we've been faithful with our our finances and and things like this enough to where you feel like uh, you are loved and, and cared for by your church. Um, that being said, continue to make your needs known as you have needs, continue to make them known. I know Pat and the rest of the elders are working hard on when we'll be able to get back together. And that, that will be strange as we, uh, I'm sure we'll have other precautions and, and things that we need to change. Uh, but, uh, during this bizarre season, just know that we're anxiously looking forward to being together with you again. Uh, and we want to do that rightly. Um, before we dive into our text also this morning, there's, there's a group of folks that I, that I want to acknowledge. Tomorrow being Memorial Day, I just want to thank any of the men and women in our congregation uh, that have served our country. Uh, normally, we would love to, to be all together in the same room, and we would cheer and applaud for you. Um, but because we can't do that this morning, I just want to say thank you. Uh, I know there are plenty of men and women who have, uh, are serving at present uh, I know a few people off just off the top of my head that are that are overseas right now uh, and so uh, if you are maybe a spouse or a family member of them who's who's still here in Ohio with us I, I want to say thank you to you for uh, sharing your husband or wife with with the church in in that way uh, there are plenty of other ways people have served our, our country as well and I, I recognize that the United States of America is not perfect but I'm thankful for the liberties that we have that many of you know, other places in the world don't have. Just one of those being the the freedom to worship God like we do. So thank you for allowing our church to exist in the way that it does. All right, we are now in week four of a series called How-To's from Malachi. Go ahead and turn there. Uh, This is the last book in the Old Testament. Uh, Malachi is a prophet who speaks to the nation of Israel after they've returned to their promised land after being exiled for a number of years. And this is likely the last bit of revelation that the Israelites are going to receive before Christ comes, which makes it also sort of a a review of their relationship to God, especially after a huge event like an entire nation's displacement. You you might wonder, how is it going? How, How are they doing? And to put it bluntly, uh, it's not going well. Uh, this book is largely negative, and and sometimes we see that in Scripture. Uh, sometimes we, we wrongly take this book and read it as if every single word is about God's blind infatuation with us and, and worship of, of us. Uh, but it's not always like that. We need to know that, yes, God God loves us of course and that is the, the, the key message of this book but he also sometimes give us gives us some hard truth and in Malachi there's a a series of excuse me while I fiddle with this there's a series of disputes between God and Israel and so uh, he he records them here and we've been exploring different facets of their relationship as we come across them if you look back at the first couple chapters you can find them at a glance if you just look for some of the Questions that are being asked. Chapter 1, verse 2, God says, I have loved you. And Israel replies with, How have you loved us? Chapter 1, verse 6, God says, You despise my name. And Israel replies with, How have we despised your name? You hear the the tone in that? Uh, I was watching a movie this weekend, and it was one of those movies where you have a, a rebellious teenager and the parents are on to them. They're figuring out something, and the, 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 the kid is doing whatever it is that the parent is insinuating, and at some point, they'll, the, the child will say something like, well, I, I can't believe, I'm not doing this, but I also can't believe that you would even suggest that. How could you not trust me? Oh, that, that drives me up a wall when I see it, and I don't even have teenagers, but it drives me up a wall when I see that. There's this attitude problem here, with Israel's worship, they have an, an attitude problem. And so, as we've looked at Malachi, we're not just exploring their actions, but their hearts. Which is why last week, God mentions they need, to, they need to listen. But not just that, they need to take things to heart to give honor to his name. There's all these things that are awry in their relationship, and God is bringing it to their attention. So far, we've talked about love honoring, listening. Pastor Matt has joked that this series uh, should have been called How Not To. So today we're going to look at another angle, another crack in the foundation with the word perseverance. Perseverance. All right, I've got, I've got three words that I think are going to help us uh, walk through uh, this passage. Three words. Here they are. A picture, a problem, and then a promise. A picture, a problem, and a promise. So if you like taking notes, split your paper into thirds. And we're going to go a few verses at a time this morning. First, uh, let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for who you are. Thanks for your faithfulness to us. God, as we explore this concept of perseverance and look at a, a picture in your word, I pray that you would help us to be more like your son Um, God, I pray that we would find uh, what is applicable to us from this book, that we don't just see it as something that happened uh, many years ago to a a distant people group, but that uh, we recognize that there are things uh, that are true and similar of our own hearts. Uh, And God, I pray that you would help us to find those so that we can glorify you better. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right a picture. We are in Malachi chapter 2, starting in verse 10. Malachi chapter 2, verse 10. He says, Have we all not one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? And we'll stop there with just one verse. In this book, Malachi has just gotten done sharing the word of the Lord to priests specifically of the spiritual leaders in this context. And he's now moving back to talking about the nation of Israel as a whole. So these are Malachi's words here. And he asks a few rhetorical questions. Don't we all have the same, Father? Hasn't God created all of us? And the answer to, to this people group should be an obvious Yes. These are core, key, foundational pieces of faith that hopefully for us now at Mission View, this, these are obvious yeses. And then he suggests that in spite of that fact, we have harmed one another. I remember one summer as a teenager, my friends and I, um, we discovered paintball. Uh, we found a couple of, of paintball guns at a garage sale. And if you've never seen them before, you you it's I say paintball, you, you might think that there's an, an art to it. The only art. In paintball is the welts that you get on your body. But they're these little compact balls of paint, and you screw on a, a CO2 canister, and they they shoot out like little little pellets of ink, inky death. And we discovered paintball one summer. So we're running around the neighborhood. We would split into teams uh, and be shooting each other, trying to avoid windows and stuff. Uh, and I remember one day I was on a team with my friends, and we are going to go after our other friends, and we decided we we're going to split up. We, we, we knew that our, our quarry was around the back of the house. So we, He was going to go around the right side, I was going to go around the left side, and we we're going to get him. And everybody's camouflaged and everything, and he goes that way and I go this way, and we're playing in the dark. And, you know, I'm creeping around the side of the house, and, and then I see him, but he sees me at the same time. So we op- open fire, and we're getting shot with paintballs, and then... Suddenly, we realize that our friend, you know, our target was nowhere in sight. Me and my friend are just shooting each other, and so after we're you know blasting each other in the face for a little bit, suddenly we all we start shouting the same thing: "Same team, same team. We're on the same team." Here. Sometimes I think Christians do this to each other, just shoot each other with paintballs. It's it's amazing uh, how sometimes Christians can be the worst to each other, despite having the same. God and Father. And we could talk about that with regard to people in general. How people are. I've noticed in my life, uh, when I have um, somebody who has wronged me, or somebody who I might even might even consider to be an enemy, or an, or an adversary, or a competitor of mine, my heart is so much softer to them when I recognize and realize that they are God's Creation as well, and we're on the same team here. I think churches would do well to realize that, to recognize that. There's so many things we could talk about, just, just with this. Racial reconciliation is something that comes to mind. In conversations about social injustices or, or race, don't these rhetorical questions apply? Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another? We're not going to get too far into that this morning. But what I want us to be reminded of is this. That our vertical relationship and our horizontal relationships are connected. In fact, our our relationship to God should influence our relationship to others. But but more so, our, our relationship to others is indicative of our relationship to God. And that's true for all of us. Doesn't Jesus sum up the Old Testament law by saying love God and love others? Jesus also says that others will know we are his disciples if what? If we love one another. And the Israelites have been faithless to one another in some way, we'll see that in a minute. And so their relationship to God is in question. And then he says that they have profaned The covenant of our fathers. Something is happening here. Israel's profaning a covenant. What's he talking about? You see, Israel and God were supposed to have a covenant relationship. The word covenant can mean promise. In this relationship, Israel would worship God and worship him, him alone and obey his commandments. And God would then bless Israel. And we see this all over the Old Testament. It is reiterated a few times. Exodus 19.5, Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28. Here's, I'll read a couple to you. Here's Jeremiah 7.23. But this command I gave them, obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people and walk in the way that I command you that it may be well with you. I'm speaking kind of generally here. Paul, even in the New Testament, looks back on Israel and he says this, They are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. In this covenant relationship, God would give Israel hope and, and purpose and they will worship him without reservation. But it's, it's, it's more than that. It's not. I don't want us to think that it's merely contractual. There is an element of that, yes. But it's also built upon love and, and respect and adoration. And, and so to help us understand a covenant relationship, there's a picture uh, that goes along with that to help us know the difference. It's Marriage. Marriage. Isaiah 54, 5, it says this, For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. Remember how Malachi began by mentioning that God is the creator? In our culture today, you probably see different kinds of relationships. Marriage relationships, business relationships. Some are contractual I do X for you, you do Y for me. Maybe, maybe I work and, and pay the bills, and, and that's what I, I give. And in return, maybe the wife will take care of the kids or cooks the meals or shares physical intimacy with her husband. I've seen that be a contractual item in a lot of relationships. Now, I'm not saying that dividing and conquering responsibility is a bad thing. But this isn't a conversation about roles. Some marriages are a ledger that compares what he does and what she does. And then what that results in is this, a revelation where one person decides that they don't get enough or, or that they give more than they get in the relationship or, or they say that they feel differently over time, years of this, or, or they might say that their spouse is a different person than they were when they first got married. These marriages don't usually last very long. Instead of persevering and remaining faithful even when it is difficult, we decide that the difficulty is not worth it. And that, that makes sense to me. If a relationship is built on a contractual arrangement, there's, there's no way realistically that two people can keep that up long term. I knew a pastor who did uh, premarital counseling, and he would ask a young uh, couple who was in love some, some questions. He would say, what, what do you love about her? And the soon, soon-to-be soon groom would say, well, she's, she's beautiful and uh, she's kind and she's caring. And he'd say, okay, okay. What do you, and you'd ask her, what do you love about him? And she would say, well, he's, he's smart and he, he's funny and he's, he's protective of me. And then he would say, what happens when she's not beautiful? What happens when he's not funny? What happens when she's not caring or he's not protective and a lot of times the couples will stop and say, well, I, I don't know. He's trying to get them to think about the difference between a contractual and a covenant relationship. Because in a covenant relationship, you're loving someone anyway, even when they're unlovable. I'd argue um, that some of us have relationships with God that are, that are contractual, and those typically don't work out either. Well, I, I prayed X amount of times and God didn't give me what I want, therefore God must not exist. It's important to remember that even in Israel's relationship or even in our relationship to God, uh, any relationship with God is, is merely an act of grace on His part. Any relationship that we have with our Creator is an act of grace on His part. He did not need us. God as being Uh, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and having an eternal relationship of love even amongst the Godhead, it, it overflows and spills out and God has included us in that relationship. God was not lacking in any way before humanity entered the scene. In a covenant relationship, I don't simply see you as an ATM or as a means to my ends. I've chosen you and you've chosen me and we belong to one another and that's the way it's supposed to be. There is a, a true love that comes from loving someone even when they're at their very worst. Even when they don't measure up. And God loves us in this way. He loves Israel in this way. So let's see. What's the problem? I'm sure you've guessed it already. What's the problem? Let's move on in our text. Verse 11, Judah, or Israel, the nation of Israel, has been faithless. And abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer res- regards the offerings or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you've been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. You not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union. And, and what was the one God seeking? God, the offspring, so... Guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourself in your spirit, and do not be faithless. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, And he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, we see that God upholds and maintains his love in this covenant relationship, and Israel doesn't. In this passage, the word faithless is used five times. And we we see a few things happening here, practically. Uh, Israelites were commanded not to intermarry, uh with with women of neighboring nations these women of neighboring nations had foreign gods and so we see that from the lowest to the highest of them in israel if they had a, a foreign wife soon they would begin practicing uh, worship of these foreign gods and, and a foreign god is a false god in this case here and this has happened in the exile too The Israelites were exiled, they started marrying women from Babylon and Assyria, and then as they've come back, they begin to worship these gods. So that's one thing that's happening, is they they have begun to to intermarry with these women, which they weren't supposed to do. Second, uh, many of them were divorcing their Israelite wives so that they could go and be with these foreign women. Or third, many of them were remaining married to their Israelite wives, but had foreign girlfriends. So you can see why faithlessness is mentioned so much here. And all of it really is pointing to a deeper issue. Marriage in this instance is is a picture pointing to something else. Jeremiah 3.20 says, Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so you have been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. Remember how horizontal relationships are indicative of the vertical one. It's an individual issue and a corporate one. It's a specific issue and a spiritual one. Unfaithfulness to your wife is unfaithfulness to God. And the picture of marriage is indicative of the fact that they are an unfaithful people at their core. They're an unfaithful people. Many of us knew um, Pastor Steve Marshall. He was Mission View's founding pastor, passed away somewhat recently, um, a few years ago, due to cancer. And I remember uh, the day that he found out he was sick, I uh, dropped my car off at the shop and needed a ride to work. So he picked me up and I was talking to him in the car Um, and it's ironic that it was the day that he was sick because we were, we had begun talking about death for some reason. And he said to me, you know, in my life, I really just want to do two things. And he said, at the end of my life, if I've been faithful to one woman and faithful in my ministry, I hope God that would consider, God would consider that a life well lived Israel's disobeying God's commandments, profaning the covenant, and then bringing their offerings to God and wondering why he rejects them. This happens with us too, by the way, church. We can't be stingy and tight fisted, lacking generosity with our finances, and then ask God to bless us financially. We can't be addicted to pornography and then ask God to bless the union of our marriage. We can't be lazy and then ask God to bless our work. We can't be vengeful and then ask for mercy. We can't be unfaithful and then ask for blessing. Now, this all deserves a disclaimer here because there's no doubt that God loves the unlovable and blesses us graciously beyond measure when we don't deserve it. Uh, Your required reading for anybody who wants them, is the book of Hosea. It is about this using marriage as an illustration. Um, We also know uh, that blessing doesn't necessarily mean health and wealth and prosperity, but rather God's will for us. But let's not imagine for a second that God delights in our unfaithfulness. So how how do we become more faithful? got two thoughts. We can do it as people and as a people. As people and as a people. I was invited to a wedding uh, recently. You know who you are. Congratulations. I'm not going to say who it is because some of you weren't invited. Sorry. Uh, I was invited to a wedding recently and it, it made me think about all these weddings that I've been to in recent years and Suddenly, I'm, I'm thinking of all these weddings that I've gone to that I forgot. Oh, I forgot I went to that wedding. They had really good food. Oh, remember this wedding. They had those big, they didn't do a cake. They did those big donuts. And, you know, man, that was a good wedding. <laughs> uh, and I've, I'm starting to remember, though, I feel like I was given homework at some of these weddings. Some of you might remember a, a wedding that you've been to where the pastor stood there and, you know, he's, He's facilitating the vows between the bride and groom, but then he encourages whoever's in attendance to, to participate in that, to bring a, a commitment to that couple about how you will help them in their marriage and encourage them and uplift them and, and help push them towards Christ, even in that, that union. And I was convicted by the fact that I've, been, there's weddings that I've been to and I've, I've made vows to that couple and I've forgotten about those. Baptism is the same way. Baptism is a a person's public proclamation of their faith, but but the church, the congregation, the body participates in that. If you go to a wedding or observe a baptism or see a child dedication service, the most important part to you is, yeah, we should celebrate together, but the most important part to you is your commitment to that person or that couple or that family. This is w- this is what Paul says to Timothy in the New Testament. He says, "Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses." Likewise, when we make vows and public proclamations, we should expect to be held accountable to those. Now, I'm I'm not saying that we need to make lists of everything that every person says and every wedding we've ever been to. But what I am saying is this. Listen, iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. Be part of your church. Join a community group. Participate in pushing one another towards faithfulness and not faithlessness. Gentlemen, ask each other about how faithful they are being uh, to their wives. Wives, ask each other about uh, how faithful people are being to their husbands. Parents, ask your children about how faithful they are being to God and and, and to their schoolwork. And let's, let's participate in faithfulness together. This section says guard. The word guard is to keep vigilant, watch together by the power of the Spirit of God. All right, let's move on. Verse 17. Verse 17 says, You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? There's something else that the Israelites are doing here. They have a confused sense of morality. Right and wrong. They call good evil and evil good. And then they, they question God's justice. I think we do that, too, in our society. Um, uh, if, I, if I'm going to speak kind of broadly here, Christians generally, generally speaking, Christians believe that uh, life begins at conception, so if Christians believe that life begins in, at conception, then it makes sense that Christians see abortion as being something that is abominable. And I've seen uh, a nation, I think, that largely practices abortion as a country have something like the coronavirus uh, sweep in and then ask the question, where is the God of justice? So sometimes I, I fear here, if, are we th- the same way? We call evil good and good evil and have a confused sense of morality and then question where is the God of justice in this moment. Um, for those of you who are, are really into apologetics, that is the a defense of the faith. Uh, one of the things that uh, I would encourage you to do if you're maybe conversing with somebody who is not a Christian, is to talk about, um, in their worldview, where do they get a sense of morality? Where do they get a sense of right and wrong? In Christianity, we say that there is one lawgiver and one judge, uh, that being God. Uh, But it's interesting that in many other religions, they will uh, say, well, you, you shouldn't judge me for this, or you shouldn't say that because it's wrong. And then if you ask them, well, who determines right and wrong? They often struggle to find an answer for that. Isn't this the problem in Genesis? Adam and Eve take this forbidden fruit, which was what? The knowledge of of good and evil. They decided to take what is right and what is wrong and the idea of morality into their own hands rather than letting it be what God determines for us. And they ask, where is the God of justice? Where is he in all of this? The Israelites wanted to see justice on display. And justice is really the law that you set forth, but also what you allow. So if you have kids in the home and you establish a curfew, it would be just to adhere to that rule. So, ironically, the just thing for God to do here with Israel would be to end his covenant relationship with them. God has an out. But the Israelites, like many of us, want justice for others and mercy for ourselves. Have you ever been been driving and somebody flies by you in a sports car? And you just think, they're going to get it. They're going to get it. I want to see some justice here. And then, you know, a couple miles later, you're still driving and you see they're pulled over on the side of the road and there's a cop car behind them. Justice justice for you. Good job. Good job, police officer. Good job, state trooper. Justice for that guy. If you've ever been on a long road trip, maybe you're itching to get home, though, and you decide you're going to start to go a little bit faster. Imagine that you get pulled over the same trip. Police officer pulls you over. Oh, I'm sorry, officer. I'm sorry if you could just show me some mercy. (laughs) That would be ideal for me. So the question is, how, how can God effectively be justice and mercy? How do we see him do both? The, the Israelites are asking, where is the God of justice? And here we're going to find an answer. Here he is. Here's the promise. Here's the promise. We're in Malachi chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit at a refiner and and purifier of silver. As a refiner and purifier of silver, he will purify the sons of Levi, refine them like gold and silver. They will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I'll be a swift witness against the sorcerers and adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress a hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Does this sound familiar? The promise is a Messiah. The promise is a Messiah. He talks about gold being refined and a F- fuller soap. Uh, gold used to be refined in, in a certain way or if you had a, a lump of gold, raw, raw material you would heat it up until it melts and imperfections or things that were not gold would, would rise and bubble to the surface and somebody would scrape off the top of that and then you would repeat that process and repeat it and repeat it and repeat it before long you would have a pure block of gold it's kind of a dirty job actually Fuller soap uh, refers to a, a fuller as somebody who would take uh, wool, sheep's wool, and after a sheep was shorn, they would take it and dye it using a very, very harsh soap in order to make it white, in order to make it clean, in order to make it pure. In Christianity, what we believe is this. There is a holy and pure and, and perfect and morally right and excellent and good God. And humanity, though, has, has turned away from God We have chosen sin and we are sinful sinners who sin and that's what we do and that's who we are. The human heart is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Paul says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And we have chosen sin and have turned away from God. And so no matter matter what we do, no matter how much we give or how much we try to be good parents or how much we try to be good employers or how much we try to be good employees or how many good works we do or how generous we can be, we can't claw our way back to God because a holy God doesn't participate with sin. A holy and pure God doesn't participate with imperfection like we have. And so what we need is to be refined like gold. What we need to be is purified like, uh, like gold. We need to be uh, made white and clean and pure like Fuller's soap can do to us. And God takes care of that problem in the person of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus comes and lives a perfect life and dies a perfect death in order to perfect some very imperfect people as he is a pure and spotless lamb that is sacrificed on our behalf for you and for me so that now if I put my faith and hope and trust in him and recognize that I'm a sinner who needs a savior and that savior is Jesus, I can have a right relationship with God. So only with Christ do we see complete justice on display as Jesus bears the wrath of God for sin, what I deserved, Jesus takes the punishment for that. And only with Christ do we see complete mercy as God spares us of what we deserve. Only with Christ do we see complete grace as God restores us to himself even though we don't deserve it. Only with Christ can we stand before a holy God. Only with Christ is that covenant relationship perfected and fulfilled. Only with Christ do we become refined like purest gold and silver. Only with Christ do our offerings become pleasing to God in any way. Only with Christ do we become more faithful. And then, At the end, there's judgment. He says, then I will draw near to you for judgment. I have a question for you. Have you you been purified or not? To be purified is, is to be sanctified. It's to be made holy. Have your offerings meant anything Were you faithful? Or the language that's used here is this. Can you endure the day of his coming? For the Israelites in Malachi's day, what they needed to know was this. God is faithful. We are not. Christ is coming. Christ is coming. For us... What we need to know is this. God is faithful. We are not. Christ has come. So persevere. I want to um, leave you with a little bit of, of scripture today. And I, I'm going to share this with you sort of as a as a benediction. Um, and this is a, my prayer is that we will take uh, these words, it's going to be in Jeremiah chapter 31, to heart. As we think about what it means to, to persevere and continue to strive to be faithful, practically in our lives and in our marriages and in our work, I want us to remember that uh, God has been faithful to us. I want us to persevere in practice, but also to recognize that we have an eternal relationship and confidence and security because we have a Savior, and that's Jesus. Let's read from Jeremiah chapter 31. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Lord, we recognize that we are unfaithful people. And we are an unfaithful people. God, thank you for the covenant relationship uh, that we see between you and Israel. God, we can see their faithlessness and your faithfulness. God, I recognize that that's true of me in my life. God, I. It seems to me like shearing sheep and and cleaning that wool would be a dirty job. I'm thankful for the fact that it was not too dirty for you as Jesus Christ went to the cross for me so that I could be made right and that I can be made pure and that I could be made whole again in a relationship with you. God, I pray for anyone who might be hearing this this morning. Uh, Lord, I pray that if uh, people do not know Jesus as their Savior, that they would consider the fact that it is difficult to persevere and be faithful on our own. And we need a Savior to help us, to save us. Lord, we, we pray all of this in your name and, and we give you honor and glory and we're thankful for who you are and what you've done for us. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for tuning in and, and joining us this morning and uh, we anxiously look forward to seeing you soon.